welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the wall of Jericho fell down after they had encircled it for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. This is God's word. Last week, we were looking at Moses and we were seeing how he faced different temptations by faith. And the writer of Hebrews takes us a little further on the timeline now and he wants to show us the faith of the people as they left Egypt and as they entered the promised land. And what we have here is we have just three little kind of vignettes of people's faith. And so we're going to take them, three, three points with three people. First one I want to look at is in verse 29. It says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. After God had sent Moses into Egypt, he, uh, the Lord sent plagues upon Egypt until Pharaoh finally let the people go. And uh, once he did, though, shortly after, Pharaoh decided that he changed his mind and he wanted to pursue them. So he sent his army after them to get his slaves back. And in the meantime, the Lord had directed his people to camp along the Red Sea. So they were all set up along the Red Sea. And so they were trapped. You know, on, on the east, uh, they had the sea, the Red Sea, and on the west, they had all these Egyptians, and they were afraid. That's the challenge here, is they were afraid. And it's important to see here that the Lord had led them to this particular place, right? As you look at the account, you can see he very specifically led them to this particular place for this particular test. They weren't there, unlike later, because of their own ideas or because of their sin. The Lord had actually led them there. The Lord led them to this place where they were, were backed up in a corner against the sea and surrounded by their fears. And so I was just thinking about that. I was thinking, like, how many of you might relate to that today, you know? How many of you might relate to a sense of being kind of backed up, cornered, and surrounded? And um, the question we could have from this is, like, why would the Lord do this? You know, and often there's no way to know when you're in the moment, when you're in the time. There's no way to know what he's doing. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes we don't find out in this life why the Lord had brought us to this place of testing. But we have here with this text uh, a heaven's eye view. If you look at Exodus and you see what happens afterwards, the reason he had led them to this place was to display his glory. It was so God could display his glory to his people and to the world, and also so he could strengthen their faith. So it was both for the glory of God and for their own good, because it turns out that faith is like a muscle, right? So um, faith is strengthened when it's stretched to its limits. You guys feel that? You guys feel like you've been stretched to your limits? Faith is strengthened when it's stretched to its limits. It turns out like, like muscle, when muscle is torn, when it stretches even to the point of micro tears, it doesn't uh, get destroyed, it grows. And that's how God grows our faith. And so the Lord had brought them to the very end of themselves, right? They couldn't be more at the end of themselves than being right up against the Red Sea and surrounded by their enemies. Then he parts the Red Sea as a way to strengthen their faith. But the parting of the sea, guys, wasn't the end of the fears, was it? It wasn't the end of fears because they had to walk through that. It actually specifically talks about that. Look at verse 29 again. It says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as in dry ground. Took faith to actually take God's way of rescue, didn't it? 
Um, Tasha and I have made a habit lately of going down to the beach after church. And last week we were down there. I was sitting there watching the waves and stuff. And I was thinking ahead of this text, and I was just thinking, like, what it would have looked like, you know, for the sea to open up and part. There's like a path through it, right, on dry ground. And I was thinking about the kind of faith it would take if the Lord said, all right, there you go. There's your way out. Take it. Come on, guys. Come on. Right? It's like, I don't know about that, right? I don't know about that. And I like the beach, right? And I'm a strong swimmer. Keep in mind that these people were not a seafaring people, okay? The Jews were not a seafaring people, nor did they engage in water sports, okay? These were slaves, right? These were slaves. It's unlikely they even know how to swim. And as you look at the Psalms, you can see that this was a culture that saw the sea as dangerous. You don't see a lot of like romantic songs about the sea in the Psalms. Usually the Psalms show the ocean as a place of chaos, of death, and even if it's a symbol of damnation, okay? So they're not like looking to go in there, right? It took a whole lot of faith for them to walk through the sea on dry ground, but they stepped out in faith, right? They stepped out quite literally in faith. They trusted that God would not let those walls of water crash in on them, right? And as soon as they crossed, it says that the Egyptians were drowned. It says, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Um, What we can see from this, guys, is that God is a God of surprising deliverances, isn't he? He's a God of surprising deliverances. The gospel is a surprising deliverance, right? The gospel shows us that our sin has put us in an impossible place, right? You know, our sin has put us in a place where we're cornered and surrounded, Our sin has put us in a place where, you know, on the one hand, we see our old life, and there's, just like them, there's slavery to sin, there's condemnation, there's death. On the other side is is freedom from sin and no condemnation in life. And what's in the middle of this that we can't cross over to salvation is there's a sea of God's judgment, right? Sea of God's judgment for our sin before us. So we have no way to come over from our Egypt to his promised land, right? The gospel shows us that, that our sin has made a sea of judgment before us. But at the cross, guys, God worked a surprising deliverance, didn't he? When we were at the end of ourselves, there was no way for us to come across, um, and we knew that we couldn't save ourselves. God made a way, right? And he parts the sea of judgment so that we could cross through on dry ground. At the cross, Jesus plunged himself into the sea of God's judgment for our sin, of the sea of death so that we could cross over on dry land. Psalm 69, which we know is a messianic psalm, we know it's a psalm about the cross, about Jesus, speaks of his death as a kind of drowning in the waves of God's judgment. Let me read some of it for you. Imagine this on the lips of Christ on the cross. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the deep mire where there's no foothold. I come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from deep waters. Do not let the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up. So what we have at the cross is that Jesus plunged himself into the sea of God's judgment and death. He took all of our sins so we could walk over on dry ground. So the invitation of the gospel is simply trust him and cross over. There's no works to be done. There's no way to earn this. Nothing like that. It's simply he has made a way through his death and you should just walk over, receive it, 
and have no fear that he's going to reject you. Have no fear that, that someday the waves of God's wrath are going to come down on you. They'll never come down on you. They'll never come down on you because they came down on him at the cross. Amen? Jesus very intentionally did this for you. He very intentionally stepped into the collapsing sea of judgment for you. And this should make us trust him, right? This would be a great thing to cause us to trust him, that we would trust him that when we feel backed up against the sea, when we feel surrounded, when we feel trapped, um, this should make us trust him and, and take whatever step of faith he's called us to do. And some of you guys this morning know exactly what that is, but there's some step of faith he's calling you to do and that we would do that trusting him, knowing that God is a God of surprising deliverances. And so first thing we see that first little vignette with them crossing the sea is that faith overcomes our fears. Secondly, they face another obstacle, right? At the end of their 40 years of wandering, look at verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. You guys remember this story? If you grew up in church, you remember this story? I think maybe people that even haven't grown up in church might remember the story, but the Israelites came into the promised lands and they faced a challenge. The challenge is this fortress city of Jericho, and there's no way for them to live safely in the land God had given them with Jericho being there because it's a walled city they could strike at any time. So there's Jericho. It's strong. It's got these mighty walls. It's secure. It's impenetrable. And so they pull up to it and they're like, all right, Lord, what's the plan? You know, what's the plan? Like, what's the battle plan? Because by this time, they'd done 40 years of God leading them in battle, showing them what to do and everything. So what's the plan? The Lord's like, okay, you ready for it? Here's what you're going to do. Gather all your fighting men, all your men of war. You go up against the city. And they're like, and attack the gates? No. And do we scale the walls? No. No, there's going to be some marching. So you're just going to like march around it. And then we attack? No. Then you come home. The next day, when you go out, we attack it? No. We march around, then attack? No. Six days. Lots of marching. We're just going to march, march, march. But on the seventh day, okay, the seventh day is when we attack, right? We're going to like go for the gate, something like that? No. Now we're going to march seven times. And they're like, okay, we'll do that. And then, and they're like, okay, this is it, right? And then you'll blow your trumpets. Can you imagine? And then we attack? No, then it falls. It's incredible, right? It doesn't seem like a solid military strategy. You guys have heard it so many times. You're like, oh, yeah, of course. That's how you attack a city. But no one ever attacked a city that way before, okay? This was not, it's not like, oh, yeah, the Jericho move. No. It sounds foolish, right? What's the challenge here? What's the challenge in their hearts? If their challenge at the Red Sea was fear, what's their challenge at Jericho? What are the, what's the challenge? What are they feeling? Probably what you're feeling right now. You're feeling confused, right? Is that the feeling you're having right now? So they were confused, okay? Just like you are. I don't know what's not coming. They were confused, right? Like, what kind of directions are these? How's this supposed to work, right? And I think if we're honest, we often have that experience with God's word. We see God's word. We see what he's commanded us to do. We see what he's called us to do. We see what being faithful to his word would be. And it doesn't seem like it's going to lead to anything good. You guys been in that position? Liars. No, I didn't ask you to raise your hand. How many of you guys have been in that position? We just, sorry, I didn't actually ask for it. Okay, how many of you guys just don't raise your hand no matter what? Okay, okay, good. We've all been in that position, right? Where we're just like, Lord, I know what it means to obey your word in this situation, but I can't see how that will possibly work out. Seems like this would be a very bad idea, right? Just like at Jericho. But the Israelites trusted God's command, and he delivered them through a message that didn't make natural sense. 
Check it out again, verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. They were saved by a message that doesn't make natural sense. And so are we, right? We're saved by a message that doesn't make natural sense. You guys, some of you guys have heard the gospel so many times, it makes sense to you at this point. It doesn't make natural sense, though. You remember Paul saying it? He says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You know, the Jews, it wasn't flashy enough. And to the Greeks, it wasn't wise enough. It looked like it was something for people that were kind of just weak and couldn't think of anything better, which is true. <laughs> the gospel is for people that are weak and can't think of anything better. The gospel, it doesn't make natural sense. It's counterintuitive, meaning it goes against our tuitions. We naturally think, and I think you guys would all agree, we naturally think that we have to earn God's favor, right? That's the default mode of the human heart. It's legalism. The default mode of the human heart is God will accept me if I do a certain level of obedience, if I kind of get my life in order to a certain degree. You have to earn it, right? But the gospel says that Jesus earned it for us. This doesn't make natural sense to people. And I think as you guys share the gospel, you hear that. People come up with things like, well, you know, if people believe that, they'll live any way they want. Turns out that's not true. Turns out that people that believe the gospel more are going to be more inclined to obey God. But it doesn't make natural sense to people. The gospel tells us that Jesus earned it, that Jesus took our, our sin on the cross and he gives us his righteousness. I'll put it even more directly. The message of the gospel says that we get saved by taking credit for someone else's work. Does that feel wrong to you? Taking credit for someone else's work? right? Or in our culture, it'd be very common, like, I don't need a handout, right? Everything I've got, I earned, right? I don't rely on other people, you know? Certainly wouldn't take a credit for someone else's work, but in the gospel, that's exactly what we do. We take credit for someone else's work. We take credit for the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is something we take credit for because he took credit for our sin on the cross. And so like God's instructions at Jericho, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, just like to them, when they heard that, they were like, this can't work, right? The immediate response of the human mind to the gospel is, this can't work, but it does, and it's the only thing that'll work. And as long as we're talking about the conquest of Jericho, I want to point out another thing, which is that Jesus's kingdom advancement doesn't work in a way that makes natural sense either. So not only is the message of the gospel something that doesn't make natural sense to us, it's God's wisdom, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, his way of advancing his kingdom is not the way we think either right? The way Jesus advances his kingdom isn't through human power. Not at all. It's completely not through human power. When I say kingdom advancement, I mean the gospel starts in Genesis. It grows. The, the covenant message grows, and then it's fulfilled in Christ, and then the message goes out into the world, right? And it starts with like maybe 120 people. And so you think, how is this going to happen? How are all the nations going to come to Christ? How, how is the, the message going to go out in the world? And it turns out that Jesus' kingdom doesn't advance through human might, doesn't advance through the sword, doesn't advance through war. And guess what? It does not advance through political power. It never has. Anytime that it looked like it was, it was a big disaster. Can we all agree on that? Anytime that Christians had tried to advance through the sword or war or political power, it was a mess. That's human way of thinking. A human way of thinking is that we need, to gain, we need to gain power to advance the gospel. And of course, sadly, it's been tried throughout church history. There's some people that would like to try it again. Some people will endlessly try things that are disastrous. But that's not the way the kingdom advances. Jesus' way is not the way of power. That's the way of the dragon, not the way of the lamb, right? 
The kingdom advances as we proclaim the gospel and lay down our lives. You're like, seriously? Yes. You imagine Jesus gathering together his disciples and he's like, just like they did at Jericho, it's like, okay, you want the plan? Here's the plan. You want the kingdom plan? Yes, we want the kingdom plan. Okay, here's what it is. Here's what you're going to do, guys. Behold, I send you out as sheep among wolves. That's my plan. And they're like, are you sure? Because we know how sheep, you're like, do the sheep have machine guns? Like, no, I'm going to send you out as sheep among wolves. He told his disciples, love your enemies and do good to them. You know, our plan is we share the gospel, and then if necessary, we lay down our lives for them. There will be some way it's necessary, but it might even be our very lives. And he says, if you do this, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Sounds a little like Jericho, doesn't it? You're like, mm, I don't know. This doesn't seem like this will work. You know what? Totally works. We've actually already seen it work, right? There are more people that claim Christ than follow any other faith in the world. The second century African church father, Tertullian, put it this way. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's not like Islamic blood of the martyrs where you're like, you know, suicide bombing yourself. This is talking about people that shared the gospel and were willing to die for their enemies. That's the seed of the church. Those drops of blood, churches sprang up everywhere. People came to faith. That's how his kingdom goes out. So God gives instructions that don't make natural sense. The gospel is a message um, that goes against the way we think of salvation his kingdom is a message that goes against the way we think of power, um, but he knows what he's doing, guys. And I just think one thing that Jericho tells us and the way of the gospel and the way of the kingdom tells us is that this would be a great time for, for all of us, including myself, to just stop second-guessing God's word. How many of you guys second-guess God's word? You're like reading through it and you're like, oh yeah, not that part again. Right? No. And we're like, oh, I wonder how I can make this fit with what I was already thinking. <laughs> it's like, no, that's second guessing, right? He knows. What do we know, really, you know? Like, we're like, well, that doesn't really fit with what I was thinking, and I've been around 49 years. It's like, come on, right? It's nuts. What do we know? So faith overcomes our confusion. Next one is, is Rahab. Let's look at the obstacle Rahab had. Verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given friendly welcome to the spies. This is a, such a great story. So Rahab was a prostitute living in Jericho before it was destroyed. And uh, she lived in a city headed for destruction. And she knows it. She comes to find that out. And that's what the conquest of uh, Canaan really was about, by the way. Um, it wasn't just about the Israelites receiving the land. It was about that, but it had a dual purpose. The other purpose was God was judging the Canaanites. And notice in verse 31, it says that they were those who were disobedient. There's a, there's a backstory to the conquest of Canaan. And I think this is important to mention because we as Americans often will try like read our history into what was going on there. We'll see it as kind of like the way that, you know, that our nation had wiped out the indigenous peoples and taken their land. They'll see that as what's going on there. That's not what's going on there. What's going on there with the conquest of Canaan is it was God's judgment on those people. So it's two things. They're getting the land. The Canaanites are getting judged. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 15. When the Lord told Abraham that he would give him that land, he told him it would be hundreds of years from now. And, and the reason he gave was really interesting. He said this, For the iniquity of the Amorites, which is the Canaanites, is not yet complete. 
So one of the reasons for the delay in Abraham's people getting the land was that God was being patient and allowing those Canaanite people to repent and gave them like four centuries, okay? So when the conquest of Canaan happens, don't think of like American settlers wiping out Native Americans to take their land. That's not what's going on. It's a picture of the final judgment. So if you're going to think it looks like something, it looks like a picture of the final judgment. I don't know if that's more comforting to you or what, but it's accurate. So um, before the Jericho was destroyed, though, the Israelites sent in some spies, right? So they sent in some spies. They find Rahab. Rahab welcomes them um, and helps them leave the city. And she had heard the, about the parting of the Red Sea. So we're got around about all this. She had heard about the parting of the Red Sea. She had heard about their conquests. She knew that the Lord was giving the land to the Israelites. And so she asked for mercy. Um, she asked to be saved from the city of destruction. And what's amazing about this story, a bunch of things are amazing about this story, but one thing that's amazing about it is that she knew to ask for mercy. Because it's one thing if she like heard about their triumphs and she feared them. There's another thing, it's like she feared their God, but she also somehow knew to ask for mercy. She's like, I want to be saved by this God. And of course, that is completely supernatural, guys. And if you're here this morning and you're sensing uh, your danger before God for this judgment of your sin and your guilt, and you have a desire for him, that's God seeking you out. He's given you that desire. That's a supernatural thing. That's the way it works. We're so lost, guys, that God has to come and find us. And so if you sense, like Rahab did, a need for deliverance, a need for salvation, and a desire to ask God for mercy, that's God already at work. Amazing. And so Rahab asked the spies for a promise. She said, promise me that when this city goes down, me and my family will be okay. And they're like, we totally promise. And then you know what else she asked for? She says, give me a sign. Isn't that cool? She says, give me a sign. Give me a sign that I won't be destroyed. And so this is what they tell her to do. They tell her, take a scarlet cord, so like a, a red kind of rope, hang it out your window. She lived in the wall of the city, so her window was like facing out there. Put it over on the side of your house. Gather all your family in the house. Don't leave your house until the destruction passes and you'll all be saved. Now, let me ask you this. It sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? What were the Israelite spies thinking when they told Rahab, hey, here's this red cord, hang it outside your house, stay in your house, you won't be destroyed, you'll be, I won't give the next word because it would give it away. What were they thinking? They were totally thinking the Passover, right? I mean, absolutely. There's no way they were thinking of anything else. Red cord on the side of the house, right? I mean, it's just too perfect, right? So what they were telling Rahab is they were telling her, so let me catch you up if you don't know the story. So the story is um, there were the plagues on Egypt, and the final plague was the death of the firstborn. And before God did that, that plague on Egypt that got them set free, he told them to slaughter a Passover lamb, put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts of their home, and then when the angel of death came through and killed the firstborn, they would not kill anyone in their home. They were told to stay in there, and that blood, that blood of the lamb, would cover their sin so that they weren't destroyed along with the Egyptians. So what they were saying to Rahab is they were saying, Rahab, this scarlet cord on your house is going to be the sign of your blood covering, right? This is, this is a sign of the substitute for your sin. This is how we were saved. Um, we know that God will honor this. And so put it on your house and gather everyone in your house and you'll all be saved. 
And of course, we know for ourselves that Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb, right? It's by us hiding in him that God's judgment passes over us. Isn't that amazing that they would do that? I just think it's so cool. So we live in a time, guys, when we're inviting everyone we can to take refuge with us under the blood of Jesus, right? Everybody come in and you will certainly be saved. I mean, like Rahab and her family, if you come under Jesus' blood, no matter how badly you've sinned, I mean, that day, um, the blood covered the sin of a brothel full of sinners, and it was enough. Isn't that amazing? And so the invitation of the gospel is come, um, come under the blood of Christ, um, trust in him, and you will be saved. His blood will cover your sin. And the cool thing is, there's room for you. I have no idea how big Rahab's house was, certainly limited. There's no limit. Like, if you're here and you're feeling the burden of your sin, like, there's room for you. Come in and you'll be saved. But one more thing I want to mention about Rahab. Not only did faith overcome her sin, but there's another thing that happened here. The Lord didn't just take away Rahab's sin. Rahab, uh, the Lord also took away Rahab's shame. And that's not in this verse, but it is in the account in Joshua. There's this beautiful line. So, um, so I should finish the story. Jericho gets destroyed. They do the walking around thing and the trumpet blasting thing, and it works. And the wall goes down, and all that's left is like Rahab's house, which must have looked like epic. And I think there's probably art of this, where it's like an entire city in rubble, and then there's like Rahab's house and the piece of the wall sitting there with the cord. Isn't that amazing? Totally amazing. Anyway, and so there's this neat thing at the end of the account about Rahab in Joshua 6. It says this, and she has lived in Israel to this day. And what I love about that is that Rahab didn't become, because of Rahab's past, she didn't become some kind of second-class citizen. You think like Canaanite prostitute, like, we'll kind of hide her. We'll bring her with us, but we're going to kind of hide her in the back somewhere. They don't do that. They go, hey, you know what? She lives with us to this day. They're proud of her, right? She's not a second-class citizen. Her, her shame has been removed. You know, the shame of her past has been cleansed and made new. The Lord took away her shame. So one thing to see with Rahab is that the blood of Jesus, the same one that saved us, also takes away our shame. Isn't that amazing? It's so beautiful. And um, the issue of shame is so common that I actually have books for you guys. Um, there's this book by Ed Welsh that I love, and it's called A Small Book About Why We Hide. And so it's about shame, regret, um, failure, insecurity. And what it's about is about how the gospel um, defeats our shame. And so if that's something that resonates with you, see how little they are and attractive? Um, what it is is there's like 50 little devotional readings, so you kind of spread out the thing. It's really great. So if that's something you wrestle with and you would read it, like go for it. Don't tackle anyone though. These go fast, but let's not have, this is church, so let's not. But anyway, I know that shame is a huge struggle for some of you, and, um, and it's common in the church for people to wrestle with shame. Perhaps you know, perhaps it's something that you did, perhaps it's something that was done to you. It can be really hard for people to believe that they're clean and new in Christ, right? You guys, if you haven't dealt with it yourself, you definitely know another believer has, but like because of something either that we've done or something that's been done to us, it can be really difficult. You be like, I'm forgiven, but I still feel unclean. I still feel dirty. I still feel tainted. I feel like my past like has permanently scarred me, stained me, right? Um, and there's huge help for this in, in Rahab's story, because you might wonder, like, okay, so she didn't die in Jericho, but who really wants Rahab? 
you know, a Canaanite prostitute, or she was. The Lord wanted Rahab. That's the beautiful thing about this story. In fact, he scanned the whole city of Jericho and zeroed in and wanted Rahab. There's a reason the spies went to her house, right? There's a reason why she knew to call out to the Lord. God chose Rahab. God chose Rahab to be a part of his bride. She's no longer a prostitute. She's now Jesus' bride. There's a, a, a powerful passage in 1 Corinthians that gives us this. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then listen to this. And such were some of you. Isn't that awesome? And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Isn't that awesome? Don't you just love, and such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified. So that's a fact, okay? That 1 Corinthians 6.11 is a fact. You were washed, if you're in Christ. You were sanctified and you were justified. That's a fact. And that's something that God calls us to believe more and more, right? But that's a true statement. Such were some of you. Notice the identity has shifted. Rahab's identity has shifted. She went from being a prostitute to being a part of God's bride. And what's really cool when you read the biblical genealogy is that there was a guy named Salmon, not Salmon, Salmon, who reflected God's love for Rahab. Okay, So God chose Rahab to be a part of his bride. And then this guy, Salmon, reflecting God's love for Rahab, chose her to be his bride. Isn't that cool? She doesn't just end up like in the back of the you know, wagon train as they're going along. Some Jewish man decides to choose Rahab to be his bride. And as the genealogy tells us, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. Isn't that amazing? So it turns out that Rahab becomes a mother in the line of the greatest king in Israel. That's inclusion, right? That's not second-class citizen, is it? That's totally made new. And not only that, right? You guys are itching for me to say the next thing. Which is that Rahab is also in the line of Jesus, the Messiah. So Rahab, this Canaanite prostitute who came to the Lord and was made new, became the great, 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 grandmother of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? It's just incredible. Rahab's shame was replaced with glory. I mean, there's nothing else to call that but glory, right? To be like united to Christ like she was, there's nothing you can call that but glory. Her shame was turned to glory. Her union with Christ removed her shame. Your union with Christ removes your shame, right? How can we live in shame when we are united to Christ like Rahab was, right? Faith overcomes our fear. Faith overcomes our confusion, Faith overcomes our sin and even our shame. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that even as we're hearing that faith does these things, we feel undone, not completed. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust you with our fears. When we feel backed in a corner and surrounded, not just when we feel like that, when we are like that, we pray that you would 
help us to trust you in our fear. Show us that you're the one that splits the seas. Show us that you're the one that has a plan in all these things that are so terrifying and difficult. And help us to take the next step of faith you're calling us to. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to trust you with our confusion. When we read your commands and we just don't see how they make sense to us, Lord, show us again, this is a really obvious thing, but we need to hear it, that you know better than we do. You're wiser than we are. You know better and you're, you, you, the things you command are for our good. And so help us to trust you, Lord. Help us to trust you that you have covered our sin and shame. Lord, help us to shun the lies of the enemy. Lord, when the devil tempts us to either make us feel unforgiven, or maybe he's like, oh yeah, you're forgiven, but you're super dirty still, super unclean. You know, that thing in your past will always stain you. Lord, we pray that you would, we pray you'd punch him in the teeth, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to shun his lies. All he can do at this point is lie to us. We pray that we wouldn't listen to it. You won't listen to the accusations of Satan. And so we pray that you'd help us to not listen to the accusations of Satan. Help us to believe, Lord, that your promise, you promised us that we're forgiven and clean. Help us to believe that with our whole heart and mind. Help us to walk in the dignity of inclusion into Jesus that Rahab walked in. Just so thankful as I think about her new life and how she walked in dignity and a new people not carrying her past along. She was an honored member of God's people and that you wanted her included in your son, united to him. We thank you that in Hebrews it says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters and apparently fathers and mothers too. And so we thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that you would help rid our shame as we see that you're not ashamed of us and we're united in your son. We thank you for all these treasures. We didn't deserve any of this. It's amazing. You didn't have to give any of this, and yet you do. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.